0: You're listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. We pray that today's message helps you to connect to Jesus for life change. Just one verse today, Judges chapter 3, verse 31. We've been going through this series uh, since the the beginning of the year here. And a couple weeks ago, I was off. Pastor Dave made a comment. I don't know if he just thought that I don't, watch the videos afterwards or what, but he was making fun of me about running. And so I wonder in our congregation, how many of you in here have ever been in a race? Could have been a three-legged race, a potato sack race, when you were in elementary school, a relay race. Everybody, oh, let's do it at once. Use like a wave. We did the wave kind of. I don't know if you saw from up here. How many of you ever been in any kind of race? Raise your hand. All right, keep them up. Keep them up. How many of you have ever run like a mile or longer race? You can put your hands down. as it goes down. How about a 5K or more? Uh, half marathon, marathon? All right, triathlon, Ironman, impressive. Look at y'all. All right, one last one. You ever run a Spartan race? Anybody here ever run a Spartan race? David over here, got some people. All right, got a few. Any of you who think that running for recreation is nonsense, crazy, whatever. You're the one that posts to the social media, I don't run because the Bible says, you know, unrighteous people get chased, like all that kind of stuff. And so, if you think that running is crazy, In a Spartan race, what they do is it's about the length of a 5K. It can vary from race to race, but they set up a bunch of obstacles to make it harder. I went to a a website this week that specializes in this. It was race.spartan.com, and they said that their mission is to make unbreakable humans. (laughs) But they do it by giving a bunch of things that will break humans. And so what they do is you go to run this race about the length of a 5K, and it says if you can run a 5K in about 30 minutes, this race will take you somewhere between 45 minutes and two hours. (laughs) because you're gonna to have to carry heavy objects and you know put logs on your neck and climb over a wall and they don't tell you what the obstacles are before you get there, that's part of the race. Well, today at Southbridge, we're gonna have our own Spartan race. You guys can bring the obstacles in now, we'll begin to set these up. And we've got two contestants, some of you know, Pastor Danny. And so Pastor Danny, if you could come up, Pastor John, I see here, if you could come on up, that's great, we got Pastor Danny over here, Pastor John over here, yep. For those of you who don't know, uh, Pastor John uh, is an athlete, and he's the only pastor on our staff who's ever been in a college national championship game, and so you can talk to him about that as a goalie in soccer. We got Pastor Danny here. Uh, Those of you who don't know Pastor Danny not only has been our student pastor, currently serves as our send pastor, but Pastor Danny met his wife at Triangle Rock Club, the owner of TRC, Triangle Rock Club, is a member of our church, and so he knows how to climb. In fact, I asked Danny to help me put this together and said, who do you want to go against? And he said, Pastor John, (laughs) who's his boss here, by the way, just so you know. It was close in the first service, we won't reveal who the winners are, but each guy needs a cheering section. And so, I don't wanna hear about some follow-up Paulus, some follow Paul. Here's what we're gonna to do today. If you're on this side of the room, you're Team Pastor John, give him a hand. All right. Over here, Pastor Danny. There you go. All right. Danny, your parents aren't like over here, are they? Okay, that's good, okay. And so what they're going to do, we're gonna need your help right here, we got you set up here, is they're gonna climb this rope, once they get to the top of this rope, they're gonna go through the hula hoop, after they go through the hula hoop, they climb down, they grab a, a bucket of heavy gravel, they're gonna run to the back of the room, they're gonna come back up through the middle here, and y'all get to decide. So this is a congregational, nobody, everybody's got different races to run, We don't run alone. You got you can decide, if you wanna make it really low, really high, what do you wanna do? And then the first person who's gonna hit my hand, which I'm gonna get back on the stage this time, uh, is going to be the winner. So you guys ready? Team Danny, you ready? Yeah. Team John, you ready? Yeah. All right, on your mark, get set, go! All right, give him a hand. Give him a hand. Oh, John's going through first. Oh, oh, he can use the thing. Does he all to use the thing? He's got a head start. Uh All right, I think they did like a job review in between because it was close, first service, and Danny won. Now it's one-to-one, we're going to have to start a new service. Just kidding, time breaker. Give them both a hand. Great job, guys. Now, why in the world are we doing something like that at church? Do you ever wonder that? (laughs) Here's what you find when you go to the Bible, is that multiple times in the Scriptures, our spiritual journey, our relationship with God is talked about as a race. In fact, the Apostle Paul, who to my knowledge didn't run any triathlons or Ironmans or Spartan races, says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Those who are really committed know that. And those of you who have done Ironmans and are really committed to your craft as an athlete. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. That's a temporary reward. Who remembers who won the Super Bowl four years ago? If it wasn't your team, you don't. It's temporary. But We, talking about Christians, he's transitioning the analogy, an imperishable. So we're rewarded in heaven for how we run our race, our spiritual journey. So Paul says, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So he transitioned it to a spiritual journey. He's not talking about these races that he runs and I pray while I'm running. That's great. He's talking about his spiritual journey. He says this, and or, or probably Luke, we don't know who wrote Hebrews for sure, but Hebrews chapter 12 and verse one, therefore, after talking about all these people that are following Jesus, it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, thank you for cheering on your pastor there. There's Pastor John or Pastor Danny. Hey, whoever's uh, first here, so losing is like a good thing for eternal rewards. Good job, Danny. So where are you going go? It says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us you've heard me say we all have our own race to run but none of us run alone we're in this together as a church family and you saw them run this and they both did a great job i know danny got a little tied up there this service he designed the course he won the first service he did great they both they both overcame those obstacles can you imagine how much faster they could have gone if there were no obstacles if I just said, hey, right here, I want you to run around, first one back up here, give me a high five wins. All right, jump up on the stage, that's about all I got. But can you imagine how much slower it would have been if I told them they had to build their own obstacles? Hey, you gotta put the scaffolding together, They wanna tie a rope to the top of it, put a hula hoop in there, jump into the hula hoop, go get yourself some gravel, bring that back in there, fill a bucket up, we'd still be watching them. Put the scaffolding together. <laughs> like Ikea furniture, yeah, it's take a little while. The extra parts. The first service, Nikki, John's wife, said, if he gets hurt, I'm going to be so... I was like, it's not my fault if he can't climb a rope. Like, anyway. So. <laughs> but he made it through both, so I'm so excited. Now I'm not going to get the wrath of Nikki afterwards. <laughs> we've been doing this series called Renew Us, and we've been talking about in the book of Judges one of the biggest problems they have is not actually there was no king. What we see is when we do what's right in our own eyes, which is the repeated theme of that book, which is what's happening in America, by the way, is that we go to false gods. They're created gods. The Bible says that idolatry is any time we worship creation rather than the creator of all things. And so here's what I want you to know today. It's the main point of this whole message. What we just did, what I'm about to teach you from the passage. When we follow a created God, we create our own problems with the creator God. When we create our own gods or follow a created God... We're building our own obstacles, our own barriers, our own issues between us and the God who created us. And so I've titled today's message simply, Following the Creator God in a World of Created Gods. Just one verse. Uh, Remember the theme is, it's a unique time in the history of Israel. There is no king, but that's not by mistake. There's not an election scandal going on. There aren't like extra votes to count and they're waiting to find out until the next book in the Bible. No, that's not what's going on. God wanted to be their king. He is the king of kings, and He wanted Israel, a, a nation no one else would have picked. If you were picking nations to be point people to me, it, you're not picking Israel. But that's what God does. He picks Israel. He says, "I want you to be different than the other nations, so that I can draw the other nations to myself." That's interesting. In the New Testament, He says, "To the church, let your light so shine before men that they would see your good deeds and glorify your Father who's in heaven." Same plan. And so he's taking Israel and his desires to do that, but instead Israel compromises with the culture. When we compromise in our lives, it opens the door for the enemy to come in and chaos ensues. And that's what we see in the book of Judges. We've talked about the cycles, we've talked about all those things, but here's, here's the summary of that. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, Judges twenty one twenty five. And the Bible tells us really clearly, there's a way that seems right to us and in the end it leads to death. God's not just going, come to me, I'm the best. He's saying, I love you, and I have a plan for you. You need to follow my plan, because that's what's best. For you and for his own glory. So, that's what's not happening. And so we keep, every time we jump into these passages, just going, they did evil on the side of the Lord. Evil on the side of the Lord. Well, Ehud was the guy we looked at last week. Remember Ehud? He's an assassin for Jesus. Anybody here? Were the same people that were here last week? You here? Remember Ehud? All right. I know a lot happens in seven days, but... um, Last week, Ehud goes on. He's a left-hander, and he's the son of a Benjamite, the son of my right hand is what that means. And so God's showing us his sense of humor here and who he's using to deliver. And Ehud sneaks into this house, castle, palace, whatever you want to call it, and he kills the king of the Moabites, this fat guy. He's laying in his crap afterwards. Go read it. It's like the crassest story in the whole Bible. And so he's laying there, and he walks out, fixes his cufflinks, gets in his European sports car, 007 for Jesus. <laughs> Leads the nation out of that Moabite oppression, But what we see here is gonna be real interesting that we read the Bible so linear and so two-dimensional and it's messier than that because these are real stories with real people. Look at this one verse with me. It's about a guy named Shamgar. Anybody here ever heard of Shamgar? Ever heard of Shamgar? A couple of you. Anybody here ever heard a sermon on Shamgar? And not if you watched the first service online before you got here. All right, all right. Couple, couple, we've got a couple. I'd love to talk to you. I hadn't heard one before this. Uh, Even people who study through this book oftentimes skip over this guy. He only gets one verse. You ever feel overlooked? Let's take a look at Shamgar. Here he goes. After him, talking about Ehud, was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. Hmm. So here we only have one verse. We're going to look at Gideon in a couple weeks. He's got like 100 verses. Next week, we're going to look at Deborah. She's got two chapters. They actually, if you want to read ahead, say the same thing, chapter 4 and chapter 5. One, historical information, more of a narrative. The next one, poetic information. So if you're an artist, read chapter 5. If you're more of an analytical thinker, read chapter 4. It's the same information in different format. But a lot of verses. Ehud just got a whole bunch. We heard about how he's left-handed. We heard about poop. We heard about fat. We heard about all kinds of stuff. (laughs) Then we come to Shamgar. Shamgar gets one verse. Hmm. You can't say you are this person because it'd be pretty proud, but do any of you have an introverted friend who doesn't say a lot, but when they speak, their few words say a lot? That's what this is like. I've got more points than normal, um, so we're going to go through them a little bit quicker here. There's five points in today's message, um, but just this one verse. And so the first point is simply this, our God is an uncommon God and a world following a lot of false gods, that's familiar with a lot of false gods. Our God is an uncommon God, if you just want a few words for your point. And so let's unpack what we see in this verse, and because there's only one, I'm actually going to do a little Bible study with you. Usually a sermon is just kind of the results of my own Bible study, but I want to show you how you get there a little bit. So just take the verse, and the first thing you do when you're studying a passage of Scripture, not just reading it, if you're just reading it, you are trying to get the information, but if you're studying it, you're asking yourself the question, what does it say? Not what does it mean to me? Not how do I apply this? Is this God's word for me? Just just what does it say? So let's just look at the facts. So Judges chapter 3 verse 31, pop it back up on the screen, after him. Okay, after who? Well, if you read the context, it's Ehud. But when after? Is it after the 80 years of rest? Or is it after, like right after he kills the king and then the 10,000 Moabites? We don't know. But there's only one other verse in the Bible about Shamgar, and it's in Judges chapter 5. It's in Deborah's song in Judges chapter 5 and verse 6. And it becomes clear that it's, it, Deborah's ruling during the times of Shamgar, and there's overlap in these things. And so, well, maybe the area where Ehud was leading was experiencing rest. There's other things happening in the country, in the nation that they're in, and they're not all united. In fact, they're pretty divided. Now, sometimes there's these broad statements that are made of they all turned to God, and there's times where it's like they all did evil in the sight, but remember, these are individuals, they're not all at the same place, there's a similar theme, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Hmm. Okay, so after Ehud, but we don't know when exactly, just sometime after one of those things, he was the son of Anath, we can see that, after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, we'll talk about what that means in a few minutes, he He's probably a farmer because his tool here is an ox goad, and so an ox goad, just so you know, is the tool of a farmer. Uh, he used this tool to kill 600 Philistines. Hmm. Dangerous with the steel. There he is. Is the enemy? For so those you don't know, regulators mount up. Anyway, um, and the fact that he had to kill Philistines tells us there was an enemy in the land. The Philistines. So who were they? Huh. Well, let's go to that other verse about Shamgar and see if that sheds some light on what we just read. That's uh, Judges chapter 5 and verse 6. And so if you're studying on your own, you'd have to read until you got to this. But uh, just to fast forward a little bit. In the days of Shamgar, so this is Deborah singing her song. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, so it's the same Shamgar. In the days of Jael, we'll, we'll meet Jael next week. The highways were abandoned and the travelers kept to the byways. So nobody's going out on the main roads. Why? There's a spy balloon floating over the top. Of it. Just kidding. No, because the Philistines are ruling and reigning. Who are the Philistines? Well, without getting into all the details, if you've got a good study Bible, if you read down at the bottom, it'll tell you things like this about the Philistines. They're warriors. Uh, they were seafaring people. They were experts in iron, which is a superior weapon to the bronze weapons that the Israelites would use. And it appears, we don't know this, but you can deduce this from that one verse that we have, that they took away all the weapons of the Israelites so they wouldn't be able to fight. And that's why he's using up farmers as a stick. He's using a stick hmm, to kill 600 people. And God had to deliver them, so we know they were in oppression. Huh. So people are living in a time of fear. They don't even travel out on the main roads, even if they're essential workers. They're not out there. So not out in the, There's fear. There's oppression. Oh, and it's the Philistines. So we know there's a bunch of false gods. And and God told the people of Israel, actually, if you compromise with the culture, then here's my wrath. I'm going to give you over to what you want. You want that? Then you can have it. It's Romans chapter 1 in the New Testament. Same thing happened here in the book of Judges. You want to do what's right in your own eyes. That leads to following false gods. So who were the false gods of the Philistines? Well, there's so many of them, we can't name them. But if you go back to Judges chapter 2, you'll see that a couple false gods are named. And so Judges 2 is a summary of the book. And so it doesn't tell you every individual event, but here's the summary. Judges chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. And the people of Israel did what was evil, so this is how God views our idolatry, in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had, remember this when I share something else with you in a second, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. So the God of their salvation, they abandoned for the Baals. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples, who are around them, and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. Hmm. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals, and then there's another God mentioned, and the Asheroth. Hmm. Baals mentioned a lot, especially in the Old Testament, and sometimes we just read that, and we think, well, it's just like a statue, must be like some, you know, fat guy with necklaces or something, like, I don't know what that is, it's a statue, and you kind of read past it. But notice it doesn't say the Baal, it's the Baals, plural, Baal isn't actually just a god. There were many Baals, and Baal is a title. It means lord, the lord, the lords. And so even in the Old Testament, we're talking about idolatry. They weren't really just worshiping a statue. The statue just symbolized what they were truly worshiping. One of the most popular Baals, and the one that's oftentimes being referred to in the Old Testament, Baal-Hadad. Baal-Hadad is sometimes the god of the sun, the moon, the weather, the storm, But, but, before we go, well, that's stupid. Who's worshiping in the sun? Who's worshiping in the moon? If you live in an agricultural society where the weather's really important and determines the economy, hmm, I couldn't even imagine a nation that would worship materialism. (laughs) It'd be like saying the God of the stock market or the crypto market or the real estate market or whatever market, the markets. So they bow down to the markets, the bales. And the asterisk, who's asterisk? Well, um, again, complex, uh, messy, the fragmented details in a lot of the ancient Near Eastern documents, but she's oftentimes portrayed as a fertility goddess. Oh, so the god of family. We want to have kids. Huh? Well, why do you want to have kids? Different motives, different people, all kinds of different things. So I make a name for myself. significant gives me a role, influence somebody else. Like oh, they can do work, like all kinds of stuff. Hmm. How many people about down to the god of family? What's the motive? I don't know. I don't know your heart. And so they're not a lot different than us. And oh, an astroth oftentimes associated with sexual immorality and prostitution and the pr- r- ritual cults of prostitution. Were the prostitutes voluntary or involuntary? We don't know. Oh, but whenever there was a festival, there was prostitution around it. We know that historically. Oh, by the way, uh, next week is a high and holy day. Many um, of you won't be here. Uh, it's Super Bowl Sunday we we'll gather together. You know, people will gather, and so there's the commercials with a game that breaks out during it. But what'll happen in the city where the Super Bowl happens is uh, prostitution goes through the roof. So, what are they going to say about us historically? Ritual prostitution, the market, the markets, and the sex gods, and the family. And the- we've got ministries to focus on your family that are both biblical ministries. But we take that as a created thing and make it the ultimate thing. That's an idol. And what happens with this nation, we need to be really clear on. It says in chapter 2, they turn from God, and sometimes we get in our, our heads, it was like one day they just decided, money's better than God, I'm out of here. Or, I like sexual morality more than I like God. I'm a-. No, that's not what happens, not mo- most of the time that's not what happened with us. It's a drift, it's a slow drift, starts a little bit of Compromise. It's not that big of a deal. We minimize and justify and rationalize and do all those types of things. And it's like a raft at the lake. You ever had a raft at the lake and you watch it float away? It doesn't usually float to safety, by the way. It's not like you watch your raft float away and it's like, wow, that raft is having so much fun over there. It's like, no, speedboat, Poof, at the end of the boat. When we get detached from the anchor of our faith, Jesus Christ, we don't drift back to Jesus. We drift away from Jesus. If I were studying the Bible one-on-one with you and we're trying to unpack this passage, I take you to a commentary, the New American Commentary, by a guy named Daniel Block. And so if you want to look it up, you can do that. He walks through the process that you can see in the Bible of their drift. It's too much information to give you in a sermon. Here's some highlights. Step one, he says, is a leadership problem. Uh, they had a great leader, and Joshua followed the Lord. And we've already read multiple times in this series that as long as Joshua was leading them, they followed the Lord. But there's a leadership problem after that as they're settling into the promised land. And what the spiritual leaders fail to do is create a central place for the nation to come and worship. So we, we can see that from the evidence in the text. And what Bloch says most likely happened is as they stopped to magnify God and who he is and began to forget what he had done and instead just wor- on their own worshipped in their localized places they started to drift away from God. Now, I can say how this has happened in our culture. And we can talk, well, you know, don't make, a big, don't make enough importance about the central gathering and online church and the pandemic and like all this. That's, no, listen, we had a problem way before that. And here, I am not picking on any person here. So please don't email me. But here's the deal. No, no one's in my mind. It's not something you shared with me. Wasn't it two weeks ago you told me you were church shopping? None of that stuff. How many people in our country today are actually coming to church To magnify God because of who he is and what his character is, opposed to how many people are coming to church for what it can do for them, for how it makes them feel, for fixes their marriage, helps their finances, makes this thing because they needed they had a rough week and they had, there was a shift. I don't know exactly the date or the leader to point it to or any of those types of things where church became more about the people that were coming than the God that we're talking about. Which then you've got to ask yourself the question, who is the God that we're even talking about? If every time we think about him, we're thinking just about what he does for us, how he helps me. Like, when did Jesus become your personal assistant? Like, he's like, come on, just all these things. And it's like, is that? And I don't know this, but my theory is that it's a leadership problem. And it started with the leaders of the churches. And my theory is that the motive was, because of some insecurity or ego issue in their own lives, that it was, we got to get people to come. There's a, why, is imp, why is attendance so important to so many pastors? Like, that's so weird to me. Here's my experience. The more people that come to our church, the more issues we have. <laughs> more people, more problems. Biggie Smalls, theologian. He's dead, so then, therefore, you can say good things about him. There it is. I think it's the insecurity of the leaders. They want to say, well, look, God's doing something here, which then makes them think, well, I'm good enough. I'm doing something. What? What's the deal? More people are going to watch a Super Bowl and never going to watch a church service. Doesn't mean God's got his hand on the Super Bowl. That's a weird way to, f- that's an American way. Bigger, more. Hmm, okay. What if we just made a big deal about Jesus, how many people would come? Hmm, I don't know. That was step one, was the leaders, and then the people then followed, and then step two ended up being this guy, H. Donner says, uh, what he calls poly-Yahwehism is what took place in Israel, and poly-Yahwehism, you could see because there are different tribes, and a lot of times we talk about them all as one group, but the northern part of Israel is talking about Yahweh, and the southern part is talking about Yahweh, and when you put those things together, they don't match up. Is the Jesus in Connecticut the same as the Jesus in Alabama? Hmm. Somebody sent me a video the other day. I got to repost it today because it's so accurate. Of the different drivers in different states. (laughs) I wonder if we did a different Jesus in different states. Which then you got to ask yourself the question which one's the real one? Or are any of them the real one? Because it's there's elements that you get from the Bible, and that's what they had with their poly-Yahwehism. Step three was the people not only redefined who Yahweh was, but they syncretized him with other beliefs that they had. And so syncretism, not pluralism. A lot of Christians think that I'm not a syncretist because I'm not a pluralist. I believe Jesus is the only way to heaven. That's orthodox belief. I believe, you know, no other name under heaven by which men shall be saved. Acts 4.12, the name of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Just because you believe that doesn't mean you're not a secretist. Secretist is when you fuse two strong beliefs together and try to make them one thing. So we could talk about materialism. We could talk about it's not wrong to be a patriot. But when your God starts to resemble more your political leaders than your political leaders resemble your God, that's a problem. And so we got these strong beliefs about other things and or materialism like what do poor people in South America think of preachers in the United States that say if you're if you just believed enough then you'd be healed if you just believed enough with our medical care if you just believed enough then you'd be rich with our economy it's a little different than theirs and there's faithful Christians that are watching going what where's that in the Bible it's not so you've twisted taken some truths and God's going to bless you, but the way you're defining blessing is an American way to define blessing. What does the Bible say is a blessing? It's him. You get him, Job. You get him. Hmm. Because Solomon had everything. And he says, it's all vanity. Follow God. Obey his commandments. Hmm. So God can get you there different ways, Job, Solomon. But... If there's only the American, that's why some of us need to travel. It's not just to see other places. It's so you can talk to other Christians and think, is the Jesus they're talking about the Jesus I believe in? And what if we just read the Bible, then what Jesus would we have? So their problem, syncretism, it led to syncretism. And then eventually it gets to where they're actually worshiping in the congregation the pagan stuff from culture. After the first service, somebody came up to me, told me about their church that they came from and the arguments they're having and how the bishop of the church said, I don't know if you can say Jesus is the only way? Well, Jesus said it! So, I don't know what you're doing over here. And then that's why they're arguing about whether to have pastors that represent things that get worshipped in our culture as the leaders of their congregations. And so that's, that's what happens. Same cycle. It's a drift. It's not just a moment. And we don't drift to him. We drift away from him. How do we follow him? we got to know who he is. And there's a lot I could say about that. And the rest of the points, they're going to go quick, but they're all about the glory of who he is. And the first one is this. He's a God of unequaled anger. Some of your heads popped up. Unequaled anger. Some people say, this is why I can't follow God. He's an angry God. People get angry about God being angry, which is ironic. (laughs) Some of you would rather I talked about his unparalleled patience or his, you know, unmerited grace or his unconditional love, his unfathomable wisdom, and that's all true. But from this verse, he said that the guy that he uses to deliver Israel killed 600 Philistines. We don't know if it's all at once. We don't know if it's over a period of time, but we do know that's God's wrath. Just like Ehud when he killed the king and then 10,000 and just like God's wrath in Sodom when he brought fire from heaven, just like God's wrath in uh, Genesis chapter 6 when he wiped out everybody with a flood. And just like there's anger. Now here's the problem with talking about God's anger. So we often take it out of its context of his unparalleled patience and how long he's waited. Of his unmerited means you didn't earn grace and how gracious he's been for such a long time. And we talk about how God is slow to anger, abounding, yeah, slow to anger doesn't mean no anger. He does get angry, and almost all of us know that it's possible to get angry without sinning. The New Testament says, be angry, don't sin. Okay, so it's possible to be angry if you're angry about the right things. And so I want you to think about anger with me and try to think about it in a biblical way. Imagine you're me, and you've got a couple guys that come into your office, and I'll just tell you, even though I know the Bible and some of those things, you go to a counselor sometimes, you go to a pastor, and you think, well, they know the truth, so whatever they said should be the thing. Well, sometimes we're going, which truth at which moment and, and how in this situation should I help this person? So two guys come into my office, what would you do? First guy comes in, he's a politician. Won't use his name. Um, it's like writing a book, right? Well, you just won't use your name. I can write whatever I want. Um, he's writing a bill that he thinks will help people. I don't think I need to go over the stats, how dangerous it is to text and drive. And most of you are like, yeah, it's dangerous. And you were texting. Like, All right, what time is church get out? What do you want to for lunch? And I was like, hey, as he almost hit somebody in the parking lot. There we go. Lots of people die. It's a dangerous thing. So he's writing this bill to try and save people's lives. But there's resistance from the automakers, and they fund the lobbyists, and the lobbyists will come and stop the bill from being written. Even though this is like his life's work, he's a lawyer, he knows how to write this stuff. He's an expert in putting these pieces together. He's written a great bill. He's writing it for the protection of other people, and he comes. To mind, he is ticked off because of what the because autom- the automakers are saying. Well, if you pass this bill, then. We're going to have to put stuff in our car so that people can't text while they're inside their cars. And then people aren't going to want to buy those cars. They're going to go buy the used cars that don't have those devices. And so for the sake of their freedom, that they can go and I do that. Should he be mad or not? What do you think? You think. You think through that. Second guy is a husband. Caught his wife cheating. Problem is he's caught her cheating before. The last time she had five different lovers. This time she only had one. He comes into my office. He's talking to me about that. He says, well, just one. Progress, not perfection. <laughs> and he's not mad. Should he be mad? Hmm. I made up those scenarios, a conglomeration of different people that I've talked to, but you wonder why God gets mad. He, he says we don't obey his commands, laws. We think that he writes these laws because he's trying to steal our freedom. No, he's a good God. He cares about you. And he's telling, there's a way that seems right to you, I want to take away my freedoms. It's going to lead to death. Texting and driving or lying and adultery and stealing. Yeah, he, thou shall not, thou shall not. Why? They're like guardrails of safety in your life. He, he's a good God who created you. He knows what's best for you. But when you think you are creation as a created being, you know better. That's the epitome of arrogance. You're actually in war with God. He opposes the proud. And we create our own problems when we follow created gods and it makes them angry oh and he also talks about throughout the scriptures Old Testament and New Testament that he's our husband the bridegroom some passages say that he's the husband of his people and that every sin we do and every time we commit idolatry it's spiritual adultery and he's told this nation hey don't have other lovers in your bed and they keep bringing in foreign gods foreign people I mean if he wasn't angry it'd be a sign of apathy that's why some of you laughed when I said that. But you're doing better than you were last. It's still not okay. Your idolatry, not okay with God. He has unequaled anger. And if you think I'm making it up, I read it a little bit ago. I'll remind you again, just in the chapter before this, chapter two and verse 12, says that they provoked him to anger. Find the verse here, but it's in there. Verse 14 says so they kindled his anger in some translations. He's angry. And then here we see this wrath coming where these 600 people die. Verse 14, so the anger of the Lord was kindled, burned. It's the idea of flaring nostrils. But this disaster is unparalleled patience, unmerited grace. It's part of his unconditional love. In fact, and Christians argue about this, so to be fair, I'm not just saying you don't have to just accept this, but a guy like Tim Keller says, God's anger actually reveals his love. It's not an argument against it. And what we fail to do and what skeptics often fail to do is they portray God like he's just an irate child who didn't get his way. No, put it in context. How many years of their idolatry did he endure? How much grace is he, how many times has he taken them back? Mm. And the same. And so this wrath comes and we've already seen it's not ethnic cleansing or, or anything like that. It's something different. And he's right to be angry because he loves you. And so he hates the things that destroy you unequaled anger. And he uses unlikely people. God uses unlikely people. Remember, we already went through the facts of this passage. Shamgar? Really? I'll tell you who Shamgar is in just a second, but just think about how much, as a, even just as Americans, we love underdog stories, right? We love that. I was reading this week J.K. Rowling's story. you know her story at all? She's the author of the Harry Potter book series, uh, best-selling book series in the history of the world. Richest author in the history of the world. Yeah. Well, she was a uh, at a place where she had gotten a restraining order on her husband eventually divorced him while they just had a five-month-old baby. And she was depressed, wasn't sure if the baby was even gonna make it. She was suicidal and would literally wake up in the morning surprised that her baby was still alive, living on welfare, hmm. When she first wrote the book, it got rejected by 12 different publishers. And so then when we hear her story, we're like, whoa, rags to riches, but you know what's better than rags to riches? In America, unlikely hero stories. Like we love it. Like you know, our firemen are heroes and the policemen are heroes. But then you hear somebody every once in a while. It's like I read this story of a, a little boy, Tyler Duhan, He was in New York City, and uh, he was staying with some relatives, and their house caught on fire. Eight years old. Like you expect a fireman to run into the fire. Eight years old. He wakes up during the fire, and then goes and starts waking other people up in the house. He wakes up a four-year-old and a six-year-old, saves two kids' lives. Then goes back in and gets four adults out of the house. Saves six people. When he was saving the seventh person, he died. He went in to get his grandfather, who was disabled and couldn't get out of bed. The fireman said when they found him, it appeared that he was trying to lift his adult grandfather, eight years old, out of the bed. The mom said that he and his grandfather were like best friends. Who would have thought an eight-year-old? And the New Testament says, lay our lives down? That's, that You want to see love? Someone will lay their lives down for their friend, but for their enemy? That's what Jesus does for us. That's unconditional love. Unlikely people. It's even, in America, it's like underdog, unlikely hero, but what about when the villain becomes the hero? Maybe that's why Schindler's listed so well at the box office when it came out. Do you know the story of Oscar Schindler? He's a shady dude. Alcoholic, cheated on his wife. He was a Nazi. But he lied to German soldiers and bribed them and Freed a 1,000 different Jews from concentration camps. And today there's 7,000 Jews that are alive as a result of his risk when he put his life on the line for theirs. So he goes down as a hero. Let me tell you who Shamgar is. Shamgar, um, it's a foreign name. Many scholars believe that Shamgar was a foreigner, but who's the son of Anath? What does that mean? Anath is a foreign god. It's a Canaanite god. I told you there are many. Oftentimes, Anath is actually associated with Asteroth, who was mentioned in chapter 2. They worship the Baals and the Asteroth, so a fertility goddess. But aneth when she's written about in the ancient Near Eastern documents, she's a god of violence, a goddess of violence, who slaughters so many enemies one time that her body's covered and drenched in blood. She wears a necklace that has got skulls around her neck. That's who God, so wait, hold on. So Israel's problems are coming because they didn't obey God, the one true God, the creator God, and they're compromising with a foreign culture and inviting in idols. And then God uses a guy who's a foreigner, the son of an idol, to deliver his people from their idolatry and foreign oppression. Does God have a sense of humor? We don't even know that Shamgar knew he was being used by God. He may have still been a pagan worshiping warrior who God used to deliver his people. God uses unlikely people. And it'd be one thing if it was just an obscure verse from one spot in a part of the Old Testament that most of us have never read. But he does it all the time. This is God's mode of operation. This is what he does. And that's why he takes a guy named Abraham, Abram at the time, who's infertile unable to have kids and old and he says you're going to be the father of a nation and he's the father of our faith and that's why he takes a little boy in the New Testament we don't even know his name who doesn't have much to give but gives everything he has and feeds 5,000 people and we still talk about him today that's why he takes a virgin named Mary in the middle of nowhere can anything good come from Nazareth that's a guy named Nathaniel or Bartholomew Bartholomew you picked Bartholomew there ain't no book of Bartholomew in the Bible just so you know But you're going to use Bartholomew to change the world. It's like God does this all the time. Esther? Did you know in the book of Esther, God's name's not even mentioned? Do you know why Esther's in the position she's in? It's only because of outward appearance. Most people don't even know she's a Jew. She's struggling with an identity crisis. And then she's going to be put in a spot. Where even though she was put in that place because of her outward appearance, what's going to be tested is what's inside of her. Will you put your life on the line to stop genocide? Hmm. It's like God often takes the unlikely people. Do you know why it is that Americans, we love the underdog story and we love the unlikely hero story and we even love the enemy story? It's because we know we're not Superman in a suit or we're not, you know, Wonder Woman in a minivan. And we think, well, if God could do that, maybe he could, yeah, that's what he does. He uses unlikely people. And so many of us, what we do is we think, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got this disability. Ehud may have been disabled last week. Left-handed may have been unable to use his right hand. It might have been why he was able to smuggle a sword in. If not, so I put it on the other thought. Oftentimes, we think, you know, my learning disability, my past, my whatever—that's your weakness. God will take your weakness and use it as a weapon for His glory in a battle you can't even see, Job. Because you want to talk about the things that God uses? Not only does God use unlikely people, he uses and chooses unconventional methods. He uses unlikely people, he chooses unconventional methods. An ox goad? Who here knows what an ox goad is? Anybody? You do? James, you know? You got it? All right, you guys want to come up here and preach? Because I didn't know. All right, you looked it up ahead of time. So that you're out, you're just like me. All right, Davis doesn't want to look at me because he doesn't want me to come up on stage. So ox goad, I didn't know what that was. So I looked it up. It's a farming utensil. It's about an eight-foot stick. It's got a spike on the end of it. You would goad the ox with it to make it go in the direction you want it to go. Remember in the New Testament, uh, Acts chapter 23, I think it is, where, where God says, Jesus says to Paul, why do you kick against the goad? Yeah, it's, that's the analogy he's using. Why are you fighting what I'm doing? Pushing you in the right direction, and you're persecuting me, he says to Paul. Well, here, the goad is a farming tool. On the back end of it is a a blade, which you would clear the plow with. You would dig up roots and make way for the ox to be able to go through the path you wanted him to go on. And it's probably because the Philistines took their weapons away. And when I imagine this, and maybe it's because of the movies that I watch, it's like he's taking an everyday instrument. It's like, have you ever watched an action movie where the hero takes like a, a hand towel or a dish towel and he like kills the bad guy? Somebody's just been murdered and I'm like, yeah! It's like, a lot about me right there. Anyway, but then I'll like walk into the bathroom and I'll wash my hands because I was taught how to do it at COVID. Like I'll wash my hands and do the thing and I grab the towel. And I'm like, could I? I would have never thought of that. <laughs> so this guy takes an ox go, And you know what? It'd be one thing if that was an obscure verse. But we're going to see Gideon. You're going to win. A, he doesn't even tell him at the beginning. You're going to win a battle with torches and jars. <laughs> How about Joshua? Remember last week you talked about the marching band? Hey, when they're handing out trumpets and I'm one of the religious leaders, I'm going, "Where's the gun? Like, where's the at least an ox code? Can I get an ox code?" <laughs> trumpets and torches and and we can go through all of that from a little kid's lunch and Moses' staff. And you look through the Bible, God's oftentimes doing things we would never predict, and then we look at our lives and we're looking at stuff the way we think it should go and the way that we want God to do stuff, and we're missing what God's doing because he's using stuff we would never use. Hmm. You wanna get real personal? Job, like your pain and your suffering? Oh, I had heard of you. Now I know who you are. Hmm. And some of you learning disability, some of you dyslexia. Don't ever want anybody to know, it's insecure. Don't ever ask me to read scripture in public. Huh. But you know that dyslexic are really good at solving problems, because they think of different ways to put the pieces together. I joked before about ADD, at least the ability to focus intensely at times, like I am right now with you, on something that really matters. Hmm. Yeah, there's sometimes we want to hide our weaknesses—your maybe past addiction, your struggles that you think nobody else could understand—and those are the very things that God's going to use as His weapons to accomplish His purposes in your. But that's not the way. I, there's a way that seems right to us. <laughs> his ways and our ways are not the same uncommon God, unequaled anger, uses unlikely people, chooses unconventional instruments, methods, ways, means, and he produces unexpected outcomes. Even when he tells us the outcome's going to be, we wouldn't believe it because it's so far beyond what we could ask or imagine. Remember when Jesus told his disciples, they're going to hand me over, be killed, three days later, rise from the dead, then three days later he's risen, the tomb's empty, and they're going, what happened? Remember he said, like when we're reading it, but in it He does things we would never expect. So big idea, this whole message. Remember, we create our own gods. We create our own problems with the creator God. But think about what he does. So we erect syncretism. We merge God together with other gods. And then then in our minds, we think, well, in order to get right with God, then I've got to take the pieces back and figure out who he really is and answer all these. No, you just turn to him and trust him. And he'll break down. You don't have to break down the false. He'll break down the false God. You want to see him? He'll re- he's in the business of revealing himself. That's why he wrote the Bible. That's why he sent his son. That's why he does the things that he does in your life. And even if you don't see him, he's revealing himself every day, all the time. The rocks will cry out to him if we don't. Who cares about attendance? He's going to get his praise. Amen? Amen. Oh, he does things we would never guess. And he wants to do those things in your life. Talk about using unlikely people. He wants to use you. That's amazing. That's grace that's patience that's wisdom that's weakness putting his strength on display he's not like the other gods they use you they don't have power they only have power because of the affections that we give to them we think they're going to lead to escape they lead to oppression and so you saw the guys carrying around these buckets and that was a weighty bucket been a whole lot faster just to run without the bucket here's the deal we create the buckets when we start following false gods and the weight and the secret sin God didn't make the bucket but he'll take it from you. If you'll give it. I didn't create that burden but I'll take it. Come to me all who are weary and burdened. I'll give you rest for your soul. Think about these ropes here and some of you. I was talking to a guy after the first service who was saying that he had placed his faith in Christ a couple months ago and Talk about God changed his life, but he kept trying to go back to the old life in his mind. He kept trying to make himself feel bad because God had taken away the shame and he had taken away the guilt and he had taken away the way he used to think and he said, I kept trying to make myself feel bad. I kept trying to go back to that. And God had done a work. Unexpected outcome. These ropes here that you got to crawl under Our limited thinking, the lies we believe. God will cut those things right in, but you got to come to him. So who do you want? I know we often don't function like this, but is money, sex, family, whatever, the created gods better than the creator? If not, let's turn to him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We are sorry for the times that we, we might be able to check off on a quiz that our, our thoughts and beliefs are right, that you are the only way to heaven, like your son Jesus said. But then we make you into something you're not, and you say that's evil in your sight you say that that's turning from you. and There are people online that do that. There's people in this room that do that. And If you need to turn to him, you do it. Do it in your own own words. Some of you need to trust Jesus as your Savior. I'm not going to give you words today because I don't want your faith to be based on something I've said. You cracked him. He knows. He'll work out the details. You want to talk to somebody about that afterwards? We've got next steps. We'd love to meet you. We'd love more than talking about our church. We'd love to talk to you about what that means in your life in Jesus. Father, I come to you with my brothers and sisters my biological family, my faith family, the men that will gather tonight, the men that won't be able to be there. The we surrender our hearts to you corporately. I pray right now for every every person that's here, that individually you'd be doing a work, speaking a word, bringing healing where there's pain. Give them a little glimpse of what you're doing. Those who need just a little bit of evidence, a little bit of results, a little bit of encouragement. Convict sin where sin needs to be convicted. Change thinking. I pray for somebody else in this room like the guy on the first service. The shame was gone. The lies were gone. He had PTSD. The trauma would be healed. I pray for change. I pray for healing. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you have a question about the message you just heard, email us at info at sfchurch.com. For additional resources or service information, visit us at sfchurch.com.